I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. On this episode of Newt's World, artificial intelligence is being developed so rapidly by the tech industry and AI is starting to affect millions of Americans who engage with it. From college students using chat GPT to write their papers, to AI sampling human voices, to AI creating whole new search engines like Microsoft's new launch of Bing, powered by AI. There's so much happening, I wanted to devote a series of episodes to understanding artificial intelligence. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Will Reinhardt. He is a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Well, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you briefly talk about what is artificial intelligence and how has it rapidly changed and developed over the past few years? Yeah, artificial intelligence is a big blanket term, a big tent term for a whole bunch of related technological developments that really have come to fruition and come into application in the last 10, 15 years Probably the most important things that we're talking about today, as you even mentioned, is a suite of technologies really around what's called chat GPT, right? So these technologies are called large language models. And these LLMs are really just big models that take really big data sets. And in this case, it's literally the data of the entire web. And then they put it into a model and they use that model to do some learning, to do some machine learning. And then from that, they're able to then connect it to a chat function, a messenger function, and create a whole bunch of suite of new kind of really interesting things. So I think really the fundamental idea here, the fundamental underlying part of all of this is that there's a lot of data that goes into these models and that there's a lot of human learning and a lot of human input that's needed to actually create something that's useful. To some extent, this is just an expansion of an ongoing computerization that's been, to some extent, affecting us, I guess, since the 1950s. To some extent, it's a new and very different thing. Where do you come down on those two choices? 
Computerization and the embedding of very important computers into the workplace, this has been happening since the late 1940s, early 1950s. This current technology, I think, is a bit of a change, and it could potentially be a pretty massive change. I would say very clearly that as somebody with a background in economics, that the technological developments that have come with software, even though they've been important, they haven't been as transformative, at least in the pure economic sense. They haven't been as transformative as some people would hope. And I think what these new AI programs, these new models potentially create is a new boost of technological advancement for firms, for individuals, for people. So to me, it is something that's new. What we're seeing is definitely something that's new. But there's still a lot of technologies that I suspect aren't probably going to be effective all that much by these things. You know, I can't imagine plumbers are going to be affected all that much. We've talked in the past a lot about truck drivers, but autonomous vehicles still seem to be very, very difficult to actually accomplish in practice. So to me, what's happening here is something that's very new. But at the same time, what traditionally has happened is that firms have used new technologies to do better, to become more productive. And that's been a really uneven process, depending on the firm, depending on the industry, depending on where the firm fits within the industry. So there's a lot that actually goes into this. Is there a threshold breakpoint between my car has all sorts of computer chips in it? Somebody said to me last night that there are about 300 big computer chips and 3,000 small computer chips in a modern car, which is sort of amazing. But my car can like tell me when I'm backing up. It can tell me whether I'm inside the lines of a parking space, et cetera, things that 15 years ago would have been impossible. What is the jump from that to artificial intelligence? So there's slightly separate but parallel tracks that are going on. So all of the really advanced technologies that are in your car have been created because of very specific kinds of semiconductors. There are these chips that go in and are used to drive a whole bunch of different possibilities and technologies within your car. Now, those chips, there's been a very specific subset of those chips, which have gone into helping to learn and have been really kind of fundamental in making everything that's happening in AI actually occur. So there's been a series of very specialized chips really coming out of the gaming industry that's allowed these large models, these large AI models to actually come about and allowed for these new AI technologies to actually develop. So these two things are happening right at the same time. And I think that they're very important to actually connect because the developments that you've seen in cars, that you've seen in new technology that's embedded in cars and embedded in washers and dryers and a whole bunch of other traditional goods that we all use, there's also a parallel process of advanced technology that's going on or advanced development that's going on also within AI. And those two things really are tracking each other very closely. Does AI tend to be more software-based rather than hardware? Or is that a false distinction? That's a key question. And the two have developed in parallel. Some have called this the hardware lottery. So in fact, the AI models that we're seeing right now are taking advantage of GPUs, graphical processing units. These are gaming chips, effectively, that have been developed so you can run a lot of really advanced graphics. But that technology is used fundamentally, interestingly enough, in Bitcoin and other like cryptocurrency mining, but also in AI, massive AI developments. And so the two things run in parallel and are very matched together. I think what's interesting, at least for your audience, to understand is that we're actually coming to about the limits 
of these large chat GPT related models. And that we're only going to be able to get so much bigger because of the data sets. There's limitations on how much data you can put in because we have the entire web. You can't go much further the entire web. But those large data sets really have to be matched with really, really intense computing use at the same time. And those two things really are connected. Also, they make a lot of these AI models very expensive to run. I was actually talking with a colleague recently, and there's some estimations that ChatGPT, OpenAI, is running something like $700,000 a day worth of costs just in running these models themselves. So there's a lot that goes into both making the models and then actually using the models on a daily basis. So when you start describing that, though, I'm trying to get this in my head. If you have the most advanced current games, don't you have a certain amount of autonomous learning going on by the game itself? as it interacts with the players? Yes, that can occur. And we've seen that happening. Sometimes there's learning occurring, but not all AI systems do that. I mean, is one of the distinctions of AI that it is capable of learning or is that a false distinction? It is capable of learning. So open AI and chat GPT, basically the technology that a lot of people are worried about and are using, it effectively only has learned up to about 2021 from my understanding. So it's not up to date. There are efforts to combine this system with other systems that would allow for the chatbot feature to actually integrate with the open web. But when you look at the development of AI systems, there are some that are kind of frozen in time, if that makes sense, and others that are advancing in our learning. And that really is an area of development and a really critical area of development for a lot of these AI models and AI systems. Are there geographic centers of AI development in the sense that Silicon Valley became such a dominating center for social media? Yes. So the big areas right now that we're seeing within this development is Silicon Valley. They still have a lead. There's a really big contingent in Toronto as well. The University of Toronto has had a pretty advanced AI development. There's a lot of really kind of key players in the system that are in AI in Toronto There's efforts in China as well, and so I wouldn't downplay what's happening in Beijing and Shanghai. But at least for the United States, I think the most interesting part of this, because I'm from the Midwest, is that there's a lot of emphasis now on putting data centers basically back into the Midwest because it has a whole bunch of benefits as well. So we could also see this as AI demands more computing power, we could see this computing power actually going to areas that you may not expect it as much. So in Iowa and in Michigan and areas with basically cheap energy and easy regulatory structures. Yeah, I was always struck with how much Carnegie Mellon, the city in Pittsburgh almost as an outlier, is nonetheless remarkably invested and has drawn a huge Google facility to Pittsburgh. Indeed, and it's a huge robotics development space. And what's interesting, since I got really fascinated with this a couple years ago, and what I find really fascinating as well is that some of those facilities, or at least a number of those facilities are where nuclear development and nuclear deployment happened in the 1940s and 1950s. So there is this kind of long history that exists specifically within Pittsburgh, which I think is underrated as a city, where you have knowledge base that has existed for quite some time and it's able to develop and deploy over that knowledge base. Are there specific companies that you sort of check in on regularly? The two big companies that are working right now in AI deployment and development are OpenAI. This is Sam Altman's big group. The other big contingent, the big firm is what's known as Anthropic. So they are former OpenAI people who have left. 
those are the two big players right now that are working on kind of chat functions or related sort of chat technologies. But we also should expect something. Obviously, Google has their own version of it, but they seem to be taking some time to actually develop internally their own AI tools and AI functions. The other big player that I'm kind of surprised hasn't made as many waves is Meta, Facebook, because they have a whole bunch of fundamental data. They've got a lot of messaging data. They've got a lot of the parts that all should work together. And internally, it seems as though they've had some sort of AI backend now for about four or five years. So those are the major players that are going on. The other big one in China would be Baidu. And it seems that they're also deploying a large language model something that's very similar. So those are the biggest players right now. But I should mention that it takes a lot of money to really do this. It takes quite literally billions of dollars to start up a large firm of this nature. I think OpenAI got something like $10 million to start up, and they've been getting a lot of money from Microsoft to run the computations that it actually takes to serve this content. And that's a big part of this that I think is really interesting because you do one part of it, which is you do the initial what's called training, but then every single time that you interact with this chat feature, it costs money and it costs a couple cents to actually run those chat features, which means that every instance, every single chat function is going to be really, really expensive. And that means really the only the biggest players, at least at this point, are going to be able to serve that content and serve those sorts of models. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So this is different than the rise of social media where you had the so-called garage, you know, entrepreneurs who went out and with almost no money uh, could become players. Fundamentally, yes. The economics, the unit economics of these are just fundamentally different. The social media players are known as kind of software economics. Your initial cost is maybe high, but then your individual cost, what it costs to actually serve the next person is pretty low. AI is both a high initial cost and a high variable cost. So everything costs a lot of money to serve and it costs a lot of money to start up, which means really only the biggest players can even be involved in this. But that's also changing as these things are opening up and going onto the open web. So these things will be shifting over time, I imagine. Do you think there will be a decline in cost or do you think it'll remain relatively very expensive? The best quality AI chat features are still very costly. The thing that could change this would be a new set of computing technologies. Quantum computing could really change this cost. I'm a still a little skeptical of that, and I think that's still in the near future. That's still an arm's length away at this point. But it really is pretty expensive to run a lot of these models, the high-quality models, I should say. Some of the stuff we haven't really talked as much about so far are the art and painting and music technologies and the music models that use a very similar sort of back end to create these amazing new paintings and renderings and musical recordings. Those things seem to cost a little bit less and they're actually being deployed and developed by teams of people that are working effectively for free online. It matters where in the content space you're talking about. If you're talking about language, that's one demand. If you're talking about painting and images and graphics, that's another. And then if you're talking about music, it's yet another. And all of these things all matter and the cost structures are all slightly different. But it's still not that easy to develop, deploy, and make high-quality AI models at this point. But that could change in the future. Does AI have much of an application to healthcare? There is a lot of application to healthcare. The big development, at least in the near term, that seems to draw a lot of interest is one is to develop new drugs and new drug platforms that are able to model out these systems and are able to basically model internally what the human genome works internally. So that's a big area of development. And we're seeing a lot of change there. It seems that also some of the kind of medical devicing and the medical imaging, so like cancer screening also is in that same sort of space where you have a lot of data and you can put that data into a model and then use it to do better and to have better service. So those are the two areas that we've seen, drug development primarily, and then cancer screens and various sorts of cancer screening technologies. Are you seeing the rise of sort of satellite companies that specialize in things like that, but then basically get the capability from the big companies? Yes. And then they integrate and they work specifically in very specific contracts. Some of them are working, some of them aren't. It takes a lot to do better and to actually have better processes. And it's going to take a lot of time to actually see this implemented within companies and for companies to use these new technologies in a way that does better than the traditional methods. To what extent is the federal government investing in this? 
So the federal government has for years invested in a lot of the fundamental technologies. DARPA has been a big supporter of semiconductors and the GPUs. The software itself, the technology, the software that we're talking about right now was largely developed by Google. And then they released a paper and kind of everyone coalesced around that paper. So the software side of things seemed to be far more commercially driven and driven by business. Government seems to be much more on the hard tech side of things. They've been obviously spending a lot of money on quantum computers, and there's also been a lot of efforts in semiconductors to bring a whole bunch of that back to the states. But that seems to be the bifurcation right now between the two, the hard science and then the soft science. Is there any country other than the U.S. and China that seems to be making a significant creative investment? There have been European companies that have been involved in deployment, but the regulatory structure in Europe is a lot more difficult. So in Italy recently, Italy basically banned chat GPT because it violated privacy. And it seems that Europe is really wanting to regulate AI. So there's arguments of basically banning the technology altogether within the European countries. Europe is kind of its own, I don't want to say problem, but they don't exactly have the startup scene that we have here in the States, which I think is one of the great benefits of this country. The UK does seem to have a lot of advanced technology when it comes to medical devices and medical science. So that's also another area where we've seen a lot of development. But it seems as though those companies and that big one in the UK is DeepMind. It was acquired by Google a couple of years ago. That company is probably going to get merged in with other features or functions within Google. And it seems at least that's probably the biggest player there. But other than that, really, there aren't many people who can run these models or incur the costs. And that, I think, is a very important thing to understand about the technology writ large. One of the concerns that led us to want to develop this the chat GPT, you're getting people who get calls from a system which imitates perfectly the voice of their daughter saying, oh, gee, this just happened. Can you send me $500? And so you have a whole new zone for fraud and cheating. Is that a significant evolution? That has been happening. And I think that's going to be the very near term effect that the cybersecurity and kind of police and fraud efforts, I think, are going to be the near term biggest change. It's now easier than ever to hack. It's now easier than ever to imitate somebody's likeness. But to me, there's going to probably be a back and forth between the two. So as much as we'll see nefarious actors use this, you're going to see police starting to use this as well. You'll also, I think, probably have a reaction to this and people, the initial instances of saying, hey, we have your daughter, which happened recently. I think it was like a million dollars. If you don't give us a million dollars, then we're going to do all these horrible things. I think people are going to unfortunately become more used to this and are going to understand better how to deal with it. And we've seen this as well with a lot of individuals, a lot of folks that obviously this is a big problem, fraud in particular, and identity theft is a really, really big problem in the United States but that over time, we've seen new ways of dealing with this problem. And I think that we're going to have to advance those efforts. And I think that's actually a big place where leadership actually could be helpful, that they could have a better conversation about that in particular, how police can do better and how obviously banks and financial institutions and a whole bunch of other important kind of bedrock institutions in the United States can actually do better in ensuring personal identity. Well, it may also be that you need a whole new approach to managing the technologies of fraud. I think the best testament I've seen is that during the COVID period, California unemployment lost $20 billion to identity theft. 
So this is a fundamental problem besides these AI models that it's easy to defraud states of these benefits. That is something that we really need to work on. I don't know the easy solution to that. Clearly, there has to be some kind of concerted effort to develop an ability to both block it and to track it back and make it expensive for the person who's doing it. And cheaper for a person. You know, a colleague of mine actually had an unemployment claim filed, and he's very employed still. And we were talking about this, and he was discussing how difficult it was for him to actually go to the state itself and say, hey, I know this. I did not file this claim. So I think that's the part of this that's also going to be really, really important for states to deal with, which is actively saying, hey, we have a claim against you. Is this truly you? And if states were to make that easier, I I think it's not going to solve everything. But that, I think, is a very key part of it that we actually need to make. We need to make governments more responsive to individuals. Who knew that that would be actually a solution? I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. As a former teacher... To what extent does ChatGPT end up being sort of the next generation beyond cliff notes? I have some friends who are in this space, and I have students as well at Utah State. And I've been active in talking with them about how to deal with this because the kinds of stuff that I've been asking of them requires more than just a common response. And I think what that's going to demand is that students and teachers, it probably means that there's going to be more in-classroom 
teaching, there would be more demands to have tests taken in classrooms. But it probably also means that some of the things that had happened in the past, you just write a paper, that may not be as simple as before, or more importantly, that teachers demand more from that. I don't really know how this is all going to shake out. I have noticed with some of the students that I've worked with have tried to pass off some of the material as their own. And it's pretty evidently clear that you really didn't do the work here, but that was kind of fundamentally their problem to begin with. They'd never really done the work of thinking through the problem itself. So I don't really know where that ends up, but I do know that teachers are kind of noticing this naturally and that if a student is not doing particularly well, I think it's pretty evident to them that they're not doing very well or that it feels fishy. Now, admittedly, we're really bad about understanding whether or not these things are chat GPT answers, but if individuals are still not performing in the way that they should, that still means that they're not keeping up with the grades and they're not keeping up with the teachings. And so... I know this adds a lot of new problems, but it really doesn't solve the fundamental problem, which is that it's sometimes difficult to educate. I mean, it's oftentimes difficult to educate, but it's often difficult to understand what teachers and what students really need to do better. And I'll leave that to the teachers like yourself to try to figure out how to do better on that. The whole thing, though, is interesting in terms of deception and theft. I do some work with Home Title Lock, and I interviewed a criminal who'd spent eight years in jail. The peak of his career had stolen over 200 houses online. He just went in, he replaced the person who owned the mortgage, redirected it to himself, sold the house. It became a nightmare for the person who's dealing with it. But apparently, we live in a world now where the ability to use the internet to engage in theft across a wide range of ways is astonishing. But it sounds like AI is not necessarily a dramatic increase in that capability could be, it could help make things much easier. I have a feeling that all of these instances that you're talking about, the theft of mortgages online, the problems that we've seen with unemployment and with COVID, all of those things, they have existed. You're exactly right. And we could see more and more happen in the near future. But I think what also should be understood, or at least my assumption would be that as these things increase, you'll also see reactions such that the states start using chat features to better parse out to see if there actually is a person on the other line, such that basically, you know, it kind of ramps up the armament on both sides, right? That it kind of weaponizes both sides with the technology. And that to me is probably where things need to have gone a long time ago, which is we needed better waste, fraud and abuse. I work a lot on broadband and this is a really, really fundamental problem, but it's been so for the last 20 years And this is something that we constantly talk about. So personally, I think that really is probably going to put pressure on governments and especially agencies to do more in this space. And it's unfortunate that it's happening now, but we need to clear these things up and make things work a lot better. And unfortunately, we're now seeing exactly what that cost is, and it's quite massive. So in addition to the crime side, the other thing is this concept of artificial intelligence eventually becoming autonomous and deciding that it doesn't necessarily like us. Is that basically still science fiction? Robots with lasers for eyes, I think, is still quite far off. It is something that animates a lot of people, especially in Silicon Valley. But what's interesting about everything that's been released about ChatGPT is they actually tried to do, or at least there was some efforts to try to connect various pieces together. So they tried to use the chat feature to go online and do an order, and it didn't work very well. So as much as people talk about autonomous technologies taking over 
all of these sorts of systems. I still think that's a pretty far afield. And the reason why I think that's the case is that there's a lot of effort that's spent, at least now, in trying to ensure that these chat features are embedded with some what's called red teaming. So they go through and they make sure that there's a lot of capabilities that don't exist or some sort of limitations on those capabilities. But there are still a lot of open technologies that I do worry about. So there's a lot of like fundamental infrastructure that is still very open and it could easily be hacked now. The worry that I think is not nuclear war, it's not that sort of destruction worry. It's much more mundane. You'd be able to just shut off air vents in a building and create lots of havoc. So it seems to me that the problems are much more spread out, but they're much more mundane and they potentially could exist much more in the future. But again, the other part of this is that now if you have these chat features, if you have a function, if you have an AI model that can do this sort of active hacking, there's also would be one that works to ensure that you can secure these systems. And I think that's the real thing that we need to be thinking about, how to use these AI models proactively, how we train, at least in a very narrow sense, the right kinds of models to go after and figure out the critical points of the infrastructure and say, hey, we're going to test these through AI models. We're going to do some testing and then we're going to secure everything that we have problems with. This kind of iterative method and iterative systems. We have seen a lot of firms doing this. They're getting better over time, but I think that's going to become a more critical part of the security writ large. And cybersecurity is something that I've been thinking about and talking with people over the last couple of years. But that is going to be a big area of development that I think is going to be positive for AI systems to be able to automatically detect problems and then help diagnose them and move quickly through a whole bunch of these problems and basically set up checklists. So as much as there will be problems, that's also going to be proactively used or these technologies will be proactively used to solve those problems. This is such a rapidly changing field. What would you recommend to our listeners? Are there either publications or what's the best way to keep up with the general development of the field? So I follow very closely Hacker News. It has been this service that's existed now, I want to say 20 or 30 years at this point. It just compiles a lot of the newest events and things that are happening in all of technology. There's a lot also in hard science that I love watching, but it's run by Y Combinator. And that is the group that Sam Altman, the OpenAI CEO, used to be the head of. I think still is a partner there. Point being is that that's the place where a lot of people are having this conversation about AI. Hacker News, I think, is really one of the best sources to understand a whole bunch of the different conversations that are going on. So they include links to stories, but then there's also these really long discussion posts where you get people who are technically working on the problem, having conversations with people who have a broader sense of what's happening in the industry or what's happening in the regulatory space. I think it's a very active community and an interesting community that if you're interested in what's happening in AI or really anything that's happening in tech, it's really the place to be still. You know, some people might disagree with me on that, but I think it's the best first place really to understand all of this. Speaker McCarthy and Democratic leader have jointly hosted MIT briefing members on artificial intelligence. What policy advice would you recommend? What should they do in a proactive way in this field? There's a lot that can be done and there will be a lot that does in fact happen on the policy side. So in the near term, I think it is important to be educated on exactly the capabilities of these technologies and their limits as well. We're coming up to those limits and we're about to see the limits at least of some of the major technologies, chat GPT and kind of related AI models are going to have 
some limits in the very near future. So education, I think, is a very important part. I have been skeptical, generally speaking, of taking a really, really strong, active regulatory approach on this. Some people have called for an FDA-like system. I think that at the very, very near term, we're probably going to have to deal with copyright issues. That will be something that a lot of policymakers are going to have to deal with. But probably the thing in the area to start with would be to understand liability rules and fundamentally understanding how liability shifts and who is liable for what is being said on these platforms. That is, I think, probably going to be a broader conversation. But the other thing that really should be understood by policymakers at the federal level is that states are going to be working on their own set of AI regulations, and they really already are. We're seeing a whole bunch of different states propose things. There's been a whole bunch of proposals in New York. Illinois has a biometric privacy law that seems to affect things as well. And there's a whole bunch of kind of related states that are working on this. Connecticut, I think, is working on something along those lines. And if I recall correctly, New Jersey as well. So I think my big worry is that the states are really going to take the lead in this and that they could potentially mess up some of these systems or not create the best environments for these large AI models. But at least in the near term, the big thing that I think that they should be thinking about is really privacy regulation. As much as we're talking about AI, there's a lot of the elements that exist within privacy regulation that probably could be just as easy applied to AI. A lot of questions about transparency and about data and about, again, liability when something goes wrong. Those sorts of questions could probably be answered or at least largely answered by privacy laws. And that's something that's obviously going on at the federal level that probably needs to get solved. There's a whole bunch of states that have privacy laws and they're kind of all over the board and there's a whole bunch of costs that are related there. My suggestion fundamentally would be to try to get privacy solved if you could do that first and then worry about AI. But I know that's a big task and there's a lot of Democratic leaders right now that have kind of put the stop on privacy legislation and privacy conversations. But to me, those two things really are probably pretty twinned and need to have some sort of conversation at the same time. Well, I want to thank you for joining me and for helping all of us understand the latest in the world of artificial intelligence and machine learning. As this evolves, and as we begin to see political figures trying to wrestle with it and trying to know what has to be done, I think what you're doing is very important. I hope you'll keep us informed. And I want you to know that I found this very helpful and very educational, and I'm encouraging all of our listeners to pay attention to the evolution of artificial intelligence and to recognize that this is a very important development, which is going to have many, many different impacts. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you to my guest, Will Reinhardt. You can learn more about the latest in artificial intelligence developments on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns, at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l e e s a dot com slash iHeart.